Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey guys, and welcome back. Hey Stormy, what kind of car does a sheep drive? Oh boy. I don't know what uh, kind of car does a sheep drive. A Lamborghini. <laughs> oh, bad. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my heavens. (laughs) Sometimes I think they're getting worse, but, you know, I'll just keep trying. (laughs) But but they're they're fun. Even if they're bad, they're fun. I mean, isn't that the point? Yeah. (laughs) Before we begin, we wanted to take a moment to thank a fellow Uncovered team member and friend, Kathy. She did an outstanding job updating the case visualization on the Uncovered website for our subject of today's episode, Melinda Wall-McGee. Her strong work not only helped immensely with our research, but Kathy is just such a keen researcher and a beautiful writer. We couldn't have made Melinda's case any more visually wonderful if we tried. So you can check it out. We'll include the Uncovered link in our episode details. Thank you again, Kathy. This week, we're headed south to Escambia County to discuss the disappearance of Melinda Wall-McGee. Located on the border of Alabama and Florida, Escambia County is bordered by Baldwin, Conecuh, Covington, and Monroe counties in Alabama, as well as Escambia, Okaloosa, and Santa Rosa counties in Florida. While we have previously discussed counties named after Native American words, Escambia County is noteworthy as it houses the Porch Band of Creek Indian Reservation, situated in Atmore, the city we're going to be focusing on today. The Porch Creek Indians, a segment of the Creek Nation, are the only federally recognized tribe in Alabama. They play a significant role in the state's philanthropic and business landscape, having supported charitable organizations and generated employment opportunities. According to the Porch Creek Reservation website, Tribal businesses created almost 6,000 jobs in 2018, with 90% of them being filled by non-Indians. With rolling hills, picturesque farmland, and dense wood, Atmore boasts a landscape that's both tranquil and captivating. It serves as a home to a variety of wildlife, including deer, turkey, waterfowl, and offers plenty of opportunities for hunting and fishing. With a population of around 8,600, it's no wonder the city has the laid-back, small-town feel. But it isn't just a quiet, rural retreat. If you're from Alabama, then you may already be familiar with the city thanks to Wind Creek Casino. Located in the Porch Creek Indian Reservation, it's one of only three casinos located in Alabama. 
In the midst of Atmore's tranquil landscape lies a mystery that has baffled investigators and captivated the community for decades. The disappearance of Melinda Wall McGee has left a gaping hole in the hearts of her family and friends. If you listen to our March 23rd, 2023 minisode, you'll remember that we highlighted a number of unsolved cases that have occurred over the years in the months of March and April, including Melinda's disappearance. Despite the passage of time, her case remains unsolved. We're going to take a closer look at Melinda's life and the events leading up to her disappearance, along with the investigation and efforts being made to uncover the truth about what happened to Melinda on that fateful day 20 years ago. Melinda Wall McGee was born on June 3, 1971, and was one of four children born to Weta and John Wall. According to relatives, the Wall children were all well-behaved growing up and never got into any trouble. Melinda specifically was described as a sweet person who was a loyal friend and devoted mother and wife. In November of 1989, at the age of 18, Melinda briefly married a man named Ronald Scott Jackson. The two parted ways in August of 1992, and then two years later, Melinda filed for divorce, which was uncontested. Based on the court records, it doesn't appear there were any significant disputes or issues between the couple. Despite the end of her first marriage, it seems Melinda remained optimistic about love and relationships. In 1996, Melinda married Troy McGee, and the couple had two children in addition to Troy's son from a previous marriage. Just based on what we've read, Melinda was an independent and hardworking woman who loved her family deeply. She worked the night shift as a licensed practical nurse at Oakwood Nursing Home in Bay Minette, while also raising her children and pursuing a nursing degree at Jefferson Davis Community College. Jefferson Davis instructors referred to Melinda as a bright student who was on track to graduate in the summer of 2003. And we know how difficult it could be to go to school and raise a family and work, you know, a full-time job trying to make ends meet. And it sounds like she did it with grace. It is hard. I did that after I had my son. Um, I went back and finished my degree while working full-time. And that's a lot. And that was not nursing school. So Yeah, nursing school is pretty tough. It is. I understand. That's what I've heard. It's pretty intense. And that... Is pretty impressive. Yeah. And didn't she, before that, um, she worked at the William C. Uh, Holman, right? William C. Holman Correctional Facility? I think so. There were references in media articles that said she was a nurse, but I guess we could keep in mind that she had not graduated yet. So um, maybe it was... If she may have been an LPN. Right. Um Yeah but that she worked for the Department of Corrections at, I think there's a couple of facilities in Atmore, but the Holman Correctional Facility was one. Um, I think the other was called Fountain Correctional Facility Mm. um, or Correctional Center was, I think those two were mentioned in some of the articles, but we couldn't find a time frame for that. Um, And it also said that she was subject to recall on an as-needed basis for the Department of Corrections. Melinda and her family were living in a home off Kent Road in Atmore at the time of her disappearance. The McGee home sat roughly a half mile off Kent Road, nestled within a 111-acre property owned by Willis M. McGee, Jr. However, Porch Creek Indian Housing Authority may have owned, and currently owns, 
the one-acre parcel where the McGee home specifically sat. At the time, the driveway into the property was surrounded by a thick forest of tall stately pines, which gave way to a large open field where a handful of homes sat. By a handful, I think there were three homes, including the McGee home. Yeah, it looked pretty sparse there, right? Yes. Um, it's a big open field. So we did have a brief communication with one of her relatives, but we asked about who might have lived in the other homes back there. But to their knowledge, they only recalled one couple living back there. But it looks like there were three houses, including the McGee house back there. But there, it's a big piece of property. Like, I think that parcel individually is roughly 40 acres. So they're very spread out. It's not like you're right. sitting in your neighbor's yard. Um, yeah. But the And I think a couple of those, well, a couple of those houses... At least one of the houses I saw out there had multiple buildings. So it was kind of, when I was looking at it, I was like, okay, is this a house or a like a pole barn? Or I did know. read articles that they had cows and horses and things like that. And you could actually kind of see um, on Google Maps where there was like a horse training arena, the circle arena. And then there was also oh, a yeah. um, square arena closer to one of the wood lines. So... Maybe they trained horses out there or broke them in. Um, hmm. So probably a couple of those buildings were barns, you would assume. Plus, with that much land and it being open like that, they had to have tractors or something to cut the grass. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, also in Google. So if you look on Google Map and you compare the current view or the most recent view to the view closest in time, which I think was actually 2004, you can see that those pines that surrounded the driveway were really thick and they extended pretty far between Kent Road and the actual houses that were back there. So people who were just driving through couldn't see the houses. They were just kind of hidden away from people that were passing through. But now they've been clear cut so you can actually see all the way to the road. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't look, it didn't look then like what it looks now, which is something that will kind of come back to the fact that they they were so thick and grown up at that point um, because yeah, it kind of. That comes into play. Yeah, well, possibly just in the general rumors that were kind of circulating around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another interesting part about where their property sat, you know, we kind of touched on it a little bit, was that the Porch Creek Indian Housing Authority owned that one acre within that 40-acre parcel. So right adjoining their property, essentially, the Porch Creek Indians also own about 695 acres. And so they're, they've got to be closer to, I guess, where the reservation is but the Troy and his family the McGee family they were actually members of the porch tribe Melinda wasn't but the McGee family was and now I don't think I knew that before we actually started reading into this so the fact that yeah I had no idea we have McGee's near where I am and that's not an I mean I shouldn't say that's it's a Native American name but um, 
the, the ones I know definitely are not Native American, so it, it didn't even cross my mind when I first started reading this. Yeah. Also surrounding where that is, that open property, it's all thick woods. It's very natural through there. So, like, you don't see your neighbors. Yeah. Right. And there's a right. lot of the McGee family that live around that area in the surrounding properties. But Aren't there even roads named after the family? Yeah, there are. And these aren't, like I said, these aren't little little pieces of property where you're like, you can walk out on your front door and wave at your neighbor. These are like really nice size lots. Or they're not even lots. Like these, these are acres, you know. Right. But they're all kept primarily natural, except for where the houses are. It looks like anyway. So it's really quiet. You you can't just hear what's going on at your neighbors, um, or just I see people driving down my neighbor's driveway all the time because it runs right by my house. So that's not really something though that at that time at least that would have been easily caught by neighbors if people were coming and going. Yeah. After seven years of marriage, the McGees had learned how to successfully balance their family and work responsibilities and had established a pretty solid routine. Melinda worked her 12-hour night shift at the nursing home and then headed home to catch up on sleep before going to school and or back to work. Troy would drop the kids off at the school or the sitter before heading to Maslin Carpet in Atmore for his day at work. Since Troy was typically already at work when she arrived home, Melinda had made a habit of calling him when she got home to let him know that she'd made it safely before she went to sleep. If Melinda was still asleep by the time Troy got off work, he'd pick up the kids on his way home and the kids would take turns racing in to be the first one to wake her. The morning of Monday, March 24, 2003, started out like every other morning before. After a long night shift, Melinda left the Oakwood Nursing Home in Baymanette around 7 a.m., making a quick stop at a local convenience store before heading home. Troy took their two youngest children, ages 5 and 1 at the time, to the sitters on his way to work. And since his oldest son, who was 15 at the time, was at the dentist office that morning, it meant Melinda came home to a quiet, empty house. Between 8 and 8.30, Melinda called Troy to let him know that she made it home. Since it was the first day of spring break, Troy planned to pick the kids up on his way home so Melinda could sleep in. Shortly after the call with Troy, Melinda called her mother, marking the last time the Wall and McGee family would hear from her. The dentist appointment with the oldest son is interesting to me because there's not really a lot of mention about where did he spend the rest of the afternoon. We know that he came... Did it say he was at the dentist in the morning or did it just say he was at an appointment? Everything I've read said he had a dentist appointment that morning. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was morning or if it was just... Um, So it's curious to me that it's never mentioned... Did the sitter take him? Did somebody else take him? It just because they didn't mention it, yeah. you almost think that they would have said said something. And maybe about it was him. just trying to keep him out of it. it um, or maybe they just didn't find it important because yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen any mention of a surveillance video from the convenience store, so it would be interesting to know whether there was surveillance video. What was she last seen wearing? Yeah, I'm curious about that too. Yeah. Um, we know that they have things that they're holding back because, you know, they've gotten, they've said they've gotten a lot of tips and a lot of information and they've, 
but you know that they have information that they're not sharing. So that'd be really interesting to know if they had that. There has to be a lot of information that hasn't been made public. And the sheriff at the time, Grover Smith, makes a lot of comments over the, the course of the years. Like he's speaking directly to somebody. And they say they have yeah. persons of interest, um, but they never talk about who that is. So exactly, you know, yeah. it would be interesting to know from that surveillance too, could you see anything? Did it look like somebody was following her? Things like that. That's what I really want to know. According to reports, Troy and the kids arrived home at 3.45 in the afternoon. As was their custom, one of the children burst through the door, eager to wake their mother from her nap. However, he quickly returned to Troy, expressing alarm that Bud was in the house and Melinda was gone. When Troy entered the home, he found there wasn't just Bud, but also signs a violent struggle had occurred inside the home. To further add to the confusion and panic Troy must have been feeling, Melinda's phone and purse were still inside the home, and her car was parked near the house with her keys locked inside. Can you imagine the feeling? Just the panic. Of walking in. And and knowing, yeah, knowing that your your child went in and saw this before you even saw it. And, you know, there's some discrepancies over it how much blood was found in the house. But either way, I don't think it really Mm -hmm. matters because what has been consistent is that there was signs of a serious struggle. So you come in and you find the struggle and you find the blood. And I think it would be hard to function, like to process what was actually going on. Because why isn't she there? Her car's outside. Her stuff is here. Where And Mm -hmm. when you're back in the woods like that too, it's almost like a crap. Did she wander outside, you know, to, and get lost in the woods. That's a lot of woods around there. Um, yeah. Or did she, she call any... Hurt herself while she was outside or something and then try to walk to a neighbor. Yeah. Or call I mean, an ambulance to come get her. Is that mm, why her stuff's yeah. there? Because she called an ambulance? Or did somebody yeah. else, did one of the neighbors take her? But you would think neighbors would probably call Troy to let him know ahead of time, hey, something happened. You would also... But your brain starts... Noticing all the you, it kind of goes into struggle. overdrive and mm-hmm. um, but you see where my brain goes like to the worst scenarios like oh god right. and probably some of the most far fetched did she just wander into the woods like yeah but we've heard stories like that so exactly and I just keep thinking though you know even if it wasn't a large amount of blood if the child thought it was a large amount of blood. That's almost bad enough just on its own merit. Both of the kids were really young. So right. you don't think they would necessarily be paying attention to small small things. It's got to be something that was pretty noticeable. Because the coward that killed her did not leave her body there. So we just had this horrible, bloody scene for her family to come home and see. Troy immediately called Melinda's mother, Weta, explained what was going on, and asked if she'd heard from Melinda or knew where she was. She had not spoken to Melinda since that morning, but knew that Melinda had experienced issues with varicose veins, so she suggested he contact local hospitals to see if Melinda had possibly been admitted for treatment. When local hospitals turned up no information, he immediately called a Scambia County Sheriff's Office and reported Melinda missing at 3.59 p.m. Based on the scene found in the home and evidence retrieved from the scene, Escambia County Sheriff's Office suspected Melinda had been assaulted and abducted while sleeping after her long overnight shift. 
According to media reports, Melinda's sisters weren't surprised by the fact that her keys were locked inside her car. However, they agreed that she'd have never left home voluntarily without her purse or her cell phone. Her sister Amanda further added that in their close-knit family, they would often call each other on the way to the store to see if they needed anything, and that Melinda wouldn't have left to even pick up bread without calling her mom or her sisters. Sounds like they were pretty close, you know, talking pretty frequently through most days. Yeah. So you uh, that would seem pretty obvious if something had gone wrong, you know, that they hadn't heard from her. My mom and my sister-in-law and I have a group message, and we talk almost throughout the day. Maybe not every day, depending on what the work schedules are like, but we're checking in with each other at least once a day. You know, more times than that, often not. But this is also a community where they the families live really close. So, yeah, obviously they care a lot about each other if they're calling when they're running to the store and saying, hey, do you need anything? I'll be honest. I do yeah. that for my mom when I'm on my way to her house. But yeah, that that's same with me. It, if I have to run up to the gas station or up to, you know, the dollar store or something, it doesn't always occur to me to call my mom and say, hey, do you need something? Yeah. You need Sorry, mom. Yeah. It, how did her keys end up in the car? Obviously, Melinda went inside the home because her purse and her cell phone are inside the house. It yeah. doesn't look like there was any forced entry. I think there was actually comments from the investigators saying there was no signs of forced entry. And her stuff's in there. Then again, maybe they, it was not abnormal for people to not lock their doors. I was trying to think of that, too, because, you know, if it's common for her to lock her keys in the car, that's one thing. But to be able to still get in the house, then how does that happen? So you're right. Either either she had to have gotten into the house with the keys or the door had to been unlocked. And if she had the keys, then maybe she had to go back out to the car for something and left them there. Possibly. So... My grandmother lives in a very rural area, and anytime she had to leave to do anything, um, she never locked her doors. I remember pulling up all the time, um, both when my grandfather was alive and after he passed, and the door, <laughs> the back door was always open. So, yeah. Maybe it's that in some areas where basically you know everybody because it was a small area, you know, everybody knew everybody. So maybe it's one of those things Mm -hmm. where in the community that they're in, no one really feels like they have to lock their doors. And especially considering since they were so far off the road, maybe that was another reason. But does she, I don't even carry around a spare key. So the, the locking the keys in the car was weird to me. Yeah, that is weird to me, but I mean, I guess it, I guess some people do, or maybe you know her husband has a spare set, which mine has a spare set of my keys, and I have his. So I don't even have a spare key to my own car. <laughs> so immediately following the discovery of Melinda's disappearance, law enforcement agencies and volunteers launched a massive search effort. On April 5, 2003, over 250 volunteers joined forces with law enforcement agencies at the Cell Center in Atmore to scour a 40-mile radius encompassing the McGee home. 
a search that ended up stretching into portions of Baldwin County and Escambia County, Florida. The community eagerly stepped up to assist the McGee and Wall families in any way they could, holding several fundraisers to help raise money for the reward. Despite those efforts, the community remained on edge with rumors swirling about the identity of the perpetrator. Locals speculated the perpetrator knew Melinda, as opposed to someone who randomly happened upon their house, tucked back in the woods, and out of sight from anyone just passing through, which is something that we talked about earlier with the woods being there to block the house, it's not like somebody just randomly driving through could see a house. You couldn't see their house at that point. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it's like a half mile long driveway. So you, and it's dirt. So if you're driving down the road and you see a dirt road pulling off into the woods, there's nothing there to indicate to you that there's houses back there. So, you know, the other thing I was thinking about that dirt road is... If anybody was home at the neighbor's house, that the before their house, you know, mm-hmm. when they're driving on the dirt road, I was thinking, you know, people driving on a regular road. But if you're driving on a dirt road, you imagine all the dust that kicks up. Yeah, and they. Have, I mean, even if you're going slow, you can obviously see somebody driving on the road. And they have to pass by the other houses. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the woods separate. This is an open field. There's no. Trees that block that. You, there's trees surrounding mm-hmm. that, but they could see each other. So right. if they were home, they would have seen somebody. And you're right, the dust would be crazy. In Alabama, it's like dry. Yeah. And, well, sometimes, <laughs> it depends. i um, been supposed to get rain all day today. Um, but for the most part, it is dry. So, you kick yeah. up a lot of dust, and I mean, I've seen I've seen dirt roads where you can actually because it just kicks up so much that it'll rise even above not high tree lines, but you know tree lines. So my parents live off a dirt road, and a school bus dusted me out one day, like it was oh. driving so fast, so fast, which was ridiculous because it's a school bus on this dirt road. I could wow. not see. Even past the front of my car, it was so thick. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. So you're right. There'd be a lot of dust. So anybody at home would probably notice that. And you would think that anybody that drove back there probably would have also been in a hurry. Yeah, you would think, especially on the way out. So they might could have like been more careful coming in, you know, and it might yeah. not have been yeah. as thick. It might have been a little calmer. But surely after abducting somebody they're going to be in a hurry to get out of there so did anybody see anybody speeding through the area in a vehicle that maybe wasn't familiar everybody seems to know each other so you think they probably would recognize vehicles that didn't necessarily belong there but this goes back to that or ones that did but it's odd time of the day or something to be there when most people are going to be at work and there was... Yeah, you wonder how well the neighbors know each other? I mean, if they know um, her they, general schedule, that she comes home and she goes to sleep, well, then they would think it's odd if somebody came to the Right, house. and that um, Troy was going to be at work. There was actually a neighbor who commented, her name was Tammy Kaiser, I believe. I think that's how you say her last name. She said that they lived across the street on Ewing Farm Road, and that her husband was at home all day working on the farm, but that he didn't hear or see anything. Interesting. 
But Ewing Road, I mean, you could come out onto Kent Road and go opposite of Ewing. True, yeah. So maybe they just didn't go down that way. I'm not sure where their house was on um, Ewing Farm Road. Hmm. Interesting. But I thought that was interesting. And going back to that convenience store surveillance that we were talking about and whether or not anybody was seen following her, that would kind of help to know whether or not or what time somebody would have gotten there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a long road to walk down. So you almost think they'd have to be driving. I would think so. I mean, well, and you got to think they did something with her. So. Yeah. And so that. You couldn't be walking really. No, that makes a lot of sense too. I really wasn't thinking about the fact that they would have had somebody else with them. um, Because I guess in my mind, I was thinking somebody could have walked in. They used her car and then to take her somewhere. And then they brought the car back, and that's why the keys were locked inside. Hmm. I don't know. Those keys are going to puzzle us. And then they would have just walked out. But surely somebody would have noticed if there were random people walking, unless they were walking through the wood. Yeah. The keys are going to bother me. Still, right. that's a, that would be a long, that that would be a long, I mean, it's long that's enough risky. if you're just walking along a road. Yeah. It's risky. Yeah. Um, You'd pretty much have to know where you were going, I think, if you went through the woods. But I do keep coming back to the car. Did they walk yeah, in and the use her car? Did they? Was it more than one person? Did they have somebody with them? They walk in and get her in her car and leave and then bring her car back. Did her car ever leave? That's what I want to know. Why are the well, keys in the there? Well, here's the question. Well, we don't know what happened after she was at the convenience store. Nope. So did she not even drive herself from the convenience store home? That's a thought. Yep. Well, she goes in the house, though, because her purse and her cell phone's in there. Oh, no. Um, well, the, they said there's a violent well, struggle in yeah. the house. So that's true. Yeah. We, so I keep coming something does that, happen yeah. in the house, but that doesn't necessarily so mean she makes that, it in there. Like she makes it into the house and she puts her stuff there. That doesn't mean that somebody wasn't with her when she got there. That's true. They could have, I mean, maybe it was. Some sort of like robbery situation, or you know, something. It's hard to say exactly what somebody would do in that instance. But Which is another thing. If they were, if they had a purpose for bringing her home, whatever that would be. And also, were did Melinda make the phone calls from her cell phone, or did they have a landline? If it's on her cell phone, were they before she actually went into the house? Because. Then, is there somebody there at the house waiting for her? They waited until Troy left to go in the house to wait for her and are there when she gets there. If she's on her cell phone, she may not have been paying attention or close attention. She's somewhere safe, comfortable. Mm-hmm. So she goes in, puts her stuff down. Are they already there? Right. But I keep coming back mm. to the keys in the car. Why are they in the car? That just, I can't, I don't know. Yeah. They say it's normal. That, that's not uncommon, but it's uncommon. Maybe it's because it's so uncommon for me that, yeah. you know, I, I don't even think I can lock my car actually with my keys in it. I think I don't, I can't now. Well, can I? No, I don't think I can now. But I then I might have, I think it was more feasible. I think cars have a lot of safety. Yeah, you know. yeah. Like now they have place that you can't do it now, but cautionary measures. 
Although investigators continued to work tirelessly, they had yet to uncover a motive or narrow their suspect list. In late April, they traveled to Baton Rouge to investigate any possible connection to Derek Todd Lee, a serial killer who had been linked to a number of murders that occurred in the Baton Rouge area around the same time. In 2004, they also looked into any possible connection with Jeremy Brian Jones, a man who had been convicted of raping and murdering Lisa Nichols in her Mobile County home and had also been considered a person of interest in the murder of a Georgia teenager. Time cards received from Jones' employer in Georgia would later rule him out as a possible suspect, and even though there were similarities between the Baton Rouge murders and Melinda's disappearance, there was no physical evidence tying Lee to her disappearance. Yeah, I was looking at the Baton Rouge murders, and I kept thinking, you know, it's it could have happened. That would have been right towards, you know, the end before he was arrested, um, like just a month and a half or so before. But he pretty much stayed in that area. I mean, feasibly, he could have done that, but it just seemed like he had a pretty specific M.O., where he was in the I think specific he area. took them back to his home, right? Um, Wasn't he the one? I, so were- I know. I, well, there was some that he they took away. Some were killed where they were, and some were taken away. Like, um, there was two under a bridge. So there were, there were two other guys that were murdering people around the same mm-hmm. time. Sean Vincent right. Gillis and Jeffrey Lee Guillory, mm-hmm. I think is how you say it. And... I thought they said one of them, I thought it was Lee, but obviously yeah, I, I don't think it was Lee. Yeah. Um, that somebody would bring them back to their house where they were more comfortable and then would dispose of the body later. It but, could be. I'm not as familiar with the other two. Um, I wonder, there was a lot of discussion about the investigation into Lee and to Jones but there wasn't really any information about whether they looked at Gillis and Gilroy, Gillery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wondered more about that too, because there really wasn't anything said really. And I need to go back. There's a show, there's a series on, um, I think it was oxygen and what we talked about the Mm -hmm. Uh, serial killer city, Baton Rouge or something like that. um, That discusses these and I had it playing in the background earlier today, but something caught my attention. So I backed it up and it was talking about that one of the victims was a registered nurse. So I need to go back and watch that again because I wanted to see who they were talking about. I don't know if they were talking about Lee or one of the other guys. There was um, there was at least one nurse. I don't know if the other one was a nurse or if it was kind of like Melinda where it was she was in nursing like. LPN or something. Mm-hmm. But there were at least two that were in nursing of some sort. I think there was one that was in a dental office. So kind of all sort of related. Um, of the cases that I watched, there was seven cases that they talked about, and three of them at least were in nursing or medical of some sort. It was like an episode of something, but the episode was the Baton Rouge serial killer. He would stalk them, basically, oh. and like peeping tom type stalking mm. and then so he'd pick his pick his victims basically and eventually a couple of them he would just walk right up to the door you know have some excuse for knocking on the door and enter their house 
Well, I so. guess that kind of explains why there they thought there were similarities in the case. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, there were struggles and that sort of thing. So they were all killed very similarly, but the struggle part of it and the being at their homes, very similar. I did catch a picture of one of the insides of the home on the show, and it was, I mean, it was a mess. But there, mm-hmm. that's one thing that I haven't really seen any descriptions of when we were going through and reading about it. Um, obviously, it's a violent struggle, so I'm going to assume that means that there was a mess. Um, but there's mm-hmm. really not a lot of detail as to exactly what condition the home was found in. Was it limited to just one room or was it throughout the house? Um, that's yeah. not something that I've seen about it anyway. No, I kind of wonder if it's something they're holding you know, information for so that, you know, the public doesn't know. That would be something that only the person that would have been in the house would have known. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. In June of 2003, Governor Bob Riley issued a $5,000 reward, which was later increased to $10,000 in 2004. With no new information on Melinda's disappearance, Escambia County Sheriff's Office met with the FBI and ABI in 2005 to review the evidence and interviews to ensure nothing had been overlooked. Sheriff Smith told media outlets, With this case, we called the Escambia County Florida Sheriff's Department and the Mobile Sheriff's Office and asked them to review our case and asked them if there was anything we should have done that we didn't. We followed up with those things, and then we also questioned the FBI and ABI and followed up on their suggestions. This case has never been inactive. It's hard to keep investigators motivated, but this case will not stop until Melinda comes home or her murderer is on death row. Smith further stated that the case was being treated as a homicide. We're working it as a homicide. It will be two years this Thursday. There has been a lot of coffee shop talk about any number of things, but unless we find her, we do not know. We still believe that someone out there saw something that could help us solve this crime. Once again, we asked them to come forward. At that point, investigators were receiving and following up on leads almost every day, but none of them panned out. And there were other interviews that Smith made comments in. Well, I'd say they were interviews. I don't know if he was just sending them to the newspapers. Um, but he was making comments like, I'm sure someone has information that can break this case. They saw something or heard something and they need to come forward. So. Definitely sounds like he's talking to somebody. That, yes, that sounds like there is information that is not publicly available, but there's something that they know somebody saw. Mm hmm. And it's not, I don't think it's necessarily a person of interest or a suspect, but that maybe they're, whoever they're speaking to is afraid to come forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, for instance, like what we were talking about earlier, if somebody was with her at, you know, after she left the actual convenience store, like getting into her car, something like that, you know, where somebody could have actually seen her there not realized it was a bad thing but just that they saw her getting into the car with a man or did anybody pass by her you know on the Mm -hmm. road and to know that yep i just thought it was very strange that that was a comment that was repeatedly made and maybe there isn't anything out there to make them think there's actually witnesses maybe that's just 
the way Snid speaks to try to motivate someone. I know you know something like indirect guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I know you know something. Come forward. I may not know who you are, but know somebody knows something. We say that all the time. We know somebody knows something. Well, true. But somebody has it, to. Yeah. Somebody has to. But this sound, it just, it sounds to me, and I know that I can't hear it because I'm just reading it through the newspaper articles, but it feels like he's talking to someone specifically. Yeah, I agree. Um, he is talking to somebody, <laughs> but it's like he knows he's talking to somebody specific. Yes. Somebody in mind. Uh, yeah. And they put in a lot of work. I mean, it is not common for us to be able to say that an agency called the ABI, the FBI, outside agencies from Florida, a sheriff's office for Mobile, to review their case and see if they overlooked anything. Yeah. And all those agencies, I believe, were participating in the searches as well. They were. Yep, they were. And I think that's incredibly commendable that it didn't matter whether he knew they were doing a thorough investigation. He was going to make sure he was doing a thorough investigation by letting somebody else come in and kind of critique their work. Hey, where do you think that we could have done something different? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that should be done regularly. Not because it says anything about the work that the investigators initially put into it or are continuing to put into it, but sometimes it just helps to have those fresh eyes from somebody who doesn't already have an idea of what's going on. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when you work a case for that long, I imagine that you already have built in your mind a theory of what happened. And then once that happens, I think it's probably a little bit harder to be open-minded you tend to kind of focus in on what fits your theory. So that's kind of that's like just seeing kind of, a red car, then that your mind focuses on red cars the rest of the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I always swear, I'll, I've never seen these cars. Oh, I want one. Mm-hmm. And then it's like the minute you say that, you start noticing them everywhere. Absolutely. I've done that before. <laughs> yep. We also know what everyone's thinking. But what about her husband? Because that's always the first suspect, right? Yeah. We've been told that Troy Hamelinda's previous husband, Ronald Scott Jones, were questioned and cleared. We haven't been able to confirm that. But from everything we've read, Troy and Melinda appeared to be happily married and were even in the middle of planning a weekend trip to the beach when she disappeared. No one recalled seeing any signs of discord in their marriage, according to the reports. Um, so... You know, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything to indicate that either one of them would have been involved. So we have no reason to dispute the claims that they were questioned and cleared. Right. Exactly. Three years later, after hundreds of interviews, meetings with outside agencies, and countless tips failed to lead to new information, Escambia County Sheriff's Office brought in cold case investigator Tommy Calhoun, a retired commander of the Criminal Investigative Division of the Mobile County DA's office. Deputy Tommy Calhoun was brought in three years after the murder as a special investigator on the McGee case. Are there any suspects? There there are suspects, or as is frequently called nowadays, the term is persons of interest, but we definitely have people that we have not been able to eliminate as the possibility of them being involved. In February 2008, Escambia County Sheriff's Office received a tip that Melinda's body might be found in a septic tank behind an abandoned and burned home on Jack Road. 
Escambia County Sheriff's Office, with the assistance of Baymanette PD and the FBI, excavated two septic tanks on the property, but there was no indication she'd ever been there. It was rumored this tip was received from an inmate at the Escambia County Detention Center, but Sheriff Smith refuted that rumor and stated the tip came as the result of several interviews, which led to the interview of the individual who provided the tip. That is just bizarre to me. I have to say this because why would somebody even think of a tip that specific? I mean, that's kind of, it's not like just like, you know, down the street, you know, I'm just thinking. I know that was, that behind was. A, a behind, or in a septic tank, behind an abandoned burned home on Jack Road in Escambia County, which isn't that populated in the first place, but it's not very far from the McGee home. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It says it was um, in a septic tank off Atmosphere Road behind an abandoned house. It's, um, it's a, the ruins than, of yeah. a burned home on Jack Road off Atmosphere Road. In January of 2009, investigators were on Jack Springs Road searching a flooded gravel pit behind Judson Cemetery. This wasn't far from where they searched the septic tank in 2008. Three months later, a search was conducted in the Perry Lane area of Walbeek, about three miles north of the Alabama-Florida line. Neither searches turned up any new information. By 2010, the hope that Melinda would be found alive had dwindled, and a death certificate was issued. On March 25, 2013, 10 years after that fateful day, Sheriff Smith held a press conference reminding the public the search for Melinda was ongoing and that investigators were seeking new leads. He confirmed the $10,000 reward originally offered by the governor was still available, and in addition, $5,000 had been added by the family. Smith also had a statement for the person or persons responsible. Rest assured that we will never rest. When you hear something over your shoulder, that might be us coming. We are not going to quit, and we are not going to let you rest. Melinda's family also released a statement thanking law enforcement for their continued efforts. Our family still fights a daily battle. We want to express our appreciation to all law enforcement that has worked on her case. We continue to hope for closure and ask that anyone with information call law enforcement, no matter how small you think it may be. Well, Which is something we say in every episode. Yep. And that's true because, if, you know, we'll, we'll say it again, is that sometimes you don't even know that you saw something important. You may have shrugged it off thinking, oh, wow, that was interesting, but not that interesting, you know. Yeah. But anything that might have any connection whatsoever, I, if anybody has that information, they should call it in. It's been 20 years of no closure mm. for Melinda's family. And I don't even know that closure is the appropriate word. Yeah, it's so hard to say that for families. And justice isn't even really almost a correct word. There's really no, n- none of either, really. It's what we've talked about before, the unknowing. You know, it's 20 years of not knowing. Not knowing what happened to Melinda. Not knowing where she is. And that takes its toll on families. Absolutely. It's not right for whoever has done this to still be just living their life. They're watching this right now. They're watching me right now. And it doesn't bother them at all that they're living their life and haven't told a soul what they have done and haven't paid for this at all. Melinda's sister, Amanda, had made comments in the media that she'd become 
too wary of trusting people too easy. Yeah. Um, that she'd stop listening to music because that was something that she and Melinda both share a love for. That is and, so sad. I mean, music is it is true. It is such an emotional thing for a lot of people. But can you imagine not listening to music anymore? I mean, even if you're not no. a, a really musical person, I think everybody to a degree listens to some music. I don't think I could go. I But I say that, and I guess it just depends on what yeah. happens. But that I will listen to music before I watch TV. Mm. And I always, you can find music that kind of fits any situation that you're going through. And it's therapeutic for some people. And it's really sad that, that has been taken away from her. Yeah. She also became more acutely aware of the missing persons fires for other families and what they were going through. And she made a comment about how she started looking closer at those things to see if there was anything that she could remember about the people. Did she recognize them? Is it possible that she'd even saw them, even if she didn't recognize them? Um, was there anything that stood out that she could share with the family to help them find answers? Because she knew what her family was going through. Right. And then her other sister, Lisa, you know, she says she no longer believes that Melinda's alive. And now she just dreams of obtaining justice for her sister. Yeah. And that's so hard. You know, and on top of this, you know, their family has had losses since Melinda's disappearance and of young life, which is so hard you know it's hard to lose somebody as young as melinda researching we came across some obituaries and um one was for melinda's nephew cruz mcgee who passed away last year and then just a few months ago her nephew kobe who's lisa's son passed away in february so when you pair that on top of Melinda's disappearance, and that's really close to the last time that they saw Melinda, yeah, this family's still grieving. They have, they need those answers, and probably right now would be a great time for somebody to come. Any time would be a great time, but when you're going through these losses on top of that, if you've got information, you can help this family. That's what you would want them to do for you. Yeah. Honestly, I could say right now, I beg you to come forward because this family has suffered unbelievably. Um, So many have, but this family really has lost a lot. When we do research, you know, we go through all of the subscription databases that we have, but we check all of the publicly available resources, which include social media posts. So sometimes we come across pages that are private and they don't have a lot of information. But sometimes, like today, we come across pages that have public information. So while we were flipping through the social media posts, we came across a May 9th, 2021 Facebook post from her youngest son and wanted to share it because it's not just Melinda's sisters who are filling her absence. Every year, I think this day will get easier, and every year I'm wrong. I want nothing more than to spend these days with my mama and to say it doesn't hurt to see everyone else celebrating this day would be a lie. I'd give a whole lot just to see her for one day and tell her everything I'm doing nowadays and hopefully make her proud. 
introduce her to Jordan, and show her our home and let her play with Mabel. Saying I feel robbed would be an understatement, but at least I can feel good knowing that for as long as she lived, there was never one bad thing to say about her. I love you, Mama, forever. That breaks my heart. I'm glad that we read through it the first time because it probably wouldn't have got through it that time. Yeah. Yep. 20 years later, the investigation into Melinda's disappearance is ongoing. To date, no person or persons of interest have been publicly named apart from the earlier references to Lee and Jones, and no arrests have been made. However, her family, as well as the community of Atmore, remain steadfast in their determination to bring closure to this heartbreaking case. Somebody out there knows something that may finally help uncover the mystery of Melinda's disappearance and bring her loved ones some measure of justice and solace. In the minds and hearts of her family and friends, Melinda has not been forgotten. With a life as full of promise as a sunny spring morning, this loving daughter, sister, wife, mother, nurse, and neighbor will never be forgotten as she awaits her long overdue season of justice. After recording the episode, we received a call from Escambia County Sheriff Heath Jackson. He confirmed that Melinda's case is still open and that they will continue to follow up on any information they receive. We asked if there was anything he'd like the public to know, and he gave us the following statement. The main thing is, there's people in the community that know who did this, and they were also a part of it, and everything comes out eventually. Because technology is changing, and every day that goes by with technology changing, it puts us another day closer to figuring this out. At the time of her disappearance, Melinda was approximately 5'4 and 130 pounds. She's Caucasian and has brown hair and brown eyes. If you or anyone you know has any information related to the disappearance of Melinda Wall McGee, we urge you to contact Escambia County Sheriff's Office at 251-809-0741 or submit an anonymous tip on their website, which will be linked in the episode details. You may also contact us via the Alabama Cold Case Advocacy Facebook page or on our website. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. 
We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.